You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 141, The Soviet Union, Part 11, by Air and by Sea. While the Soviet Red Army was hoping to use the new industrial capabilities created by the five-year plans to enable a new form of more mobile warfare to be fought, the Soviet Navy and Air Force were largely dependent on the actions of the five-year plans to allow them any real expansion of their capabilities. This expansion would happen. And for the Soviet Air Force, they would be able to test their new aircraft and the Soviet theories of air power multiple times before the invasion of Poland. The two most important areas where this occurred were in actions that the podcast has already covered, the Spanish Civil War and then the fighting against the Japanese in Mongolia. In both cases, the Soviet Air Force would encounter serious challenges, just like every other Air Force of the 1930s, as it engaged in air battles. From these challenging beginnings, the Soviet Air Force would go on to be an important part of the fighting on the Eastern Front during the Second World War, although its contribution would be largely overshadowed by that of the Red Army. The Soviet Navy would only really begin to be built up later in the 1930s. After the Russian Civil War, the naval power of the Soviet Union had largely decayed down to a large number of very small ships, but very few larger vessels capable of projecting any kind of real naval power and certainly nothing that could stand up to the challenges of the more modern naval powers around the world. There would be a smaller expansion plan put in place during the 1920s and early 1930s, before in the third five-year plan, the ambitions of the Soviet Navy would massively expand. All those ambitions would come to nothing, though, at least during the time period of the Second World War, as the planned construction and much of the in-progress construction was put on hold in 1941 due to the German invasion. We will start with the Soviet Air Force. Soviet air power theories during the 1920s would play an important role in shaping what the future Soviet Air Force would be, and most of those theories revolved around the Red Army. From the beginning, Soviet air power theorists structured their theories around the idea that air power existed to enable and assist the ground formations in getting their job done. The general roles envisioned for Soviet aircraft would be outlined in the 1929 regulations stating that Soviet aircraft, quote, cooperates with ground troops in the accomplishment of combat tasks, attacking enemy troops from the air and protecting them, friendly troops, from enemy air attacks through battle with the aerial enemy. It paralyzes the enemy rear, conducts aerial reconnaissance of the enemy, serves the command and troops within re- with reconnaissance, observation of artillery fire, and communications, and fulfills separate operational missions, end quote. 
During the late 1930s, one of the core concepts of the Soviet Air Force was also the entire idea of air superiority being a a fleeting state over the battlefield that could shift quickly. This meant that the Soviet Air Force had to be able to project a lot of air power over a short period of time to gain that air superiority. The Red Army had to be able to use that window of air superiority to maximum possible benefit, and the Air Force had to be in a position to reassert that air superiority again. In theory, this would be true regardless of the effectiveness of early actions, even though air combat and strikes on enemy airfields would be part of those actions. It would always be possible for the enemy to bring in more air power and reassert their position over the battlefield. These regulations from 1929 would then be enhanced and expanded in 1936, in what would be kind of the high point for Soviet air power doctrine in the pre-war years. With the 1936 regulations, Soviet air power was also tied in closely with the continuing push towards deep battle and deep operations, with the Air Force expected to perform, quote, simultaneous assaults on enemy defenses by aviation and artillery to the depths of the defense, penetration of the tactical zone of the defense by attacking units with widespread use of tank forces, and the violent development of tactical success into operational success with the aim of the complete encirclement and destruction of the enemy. End quote. From the perspective of the Red Army, the air component of deep operations was critical as the scope of the attacks would quickly outpace the ability of artillery to keep up, and it was critical that army commanders be informed of the dispositions of the enemy via aerial reconnaissance, while the actions of the Red Army were concealed from enemy reconnaissance. The new regulations of 1936 would show a slightly different focus for Soviet air power, though, slipping in a bit about independent missions before going into greater detail about the types of targets that should be targeted to best support the Red Army. Quote, air formations, as well as carrying out independent operations, act in close conjunction with all arms formations at operational and tactical levels. They undertake missions against enemy columns, troop concentrations, and support elements, bridges, and enemy aircraft and airfields. They also cover friendly forces and dispositions. End quote. This slight change is interesting because it showcases the fact that the Soviet Air Force was beginning to pull away from its almost completely support-focused roots and moving beyond being placed strictly as an enablement for the army. This change in some ways mimics some of the debates happening in other air forces around the world with air power theorists not disagreeing that they were needed to help the ground forces, but there being some disagreements on the best way to provide that support. For the Soviet Air Force, and for the British Royal Air Force, for example, the Air Force would believe that the best way to use air power was not necessarily closely tied to ground formations, but instead to give aircraft slightly more freedom on sort of longer-range interdiction attacks behind enemy lines, either against ground targets or against enemy air forces. This change in the Soviet Air Force was primarily driven by two different things. The growing industrial capabilities of the Soviet Union, which allowed for larger and more powerful aircraft to be produced in larger numbers, and the growth and support of the ideas of strategic bombing. These changes did not cause an instant shift in the path of Soviet aviation, but it did cause discussions that, in say 1929, were generally settled, and they were instead reopened. From an industrial perspective, the Soviet Air Force would very quickly expand in size, starting from under 1,000 aircraft in 1928 all the way up to 8,000 in 1936, and then that expansion would just continue and accelerate after 1936. 
Heavy bombing would also be a well-discussed topic among the Soviet Air Force. In the early 1930s, the general structure of Soviet air power was built around tactical and operational level actions, so everything was relatively close to what the army was doing, but the appeal of heavy bombers was always there, and the pull to devote resources to large heavy bombers was almost irresistible. The general focus on larger bombers in the Soviet Air Force was slightly different than in some other air forces around the world, though. Focusing more on heavy bombers as a way of delivering large bomb loads to targets relatively close to the fighting, instead of focusing on hitting strategic targets far from the fighting. Range was still seen as a major enablement, though, for these larger bombers because it provided a lot more flexibility. Longer ranges allowed for a single squadron to be based further from the front, making more space for shorter range aircraft closer to the fighting. It also allowed each aircraft to cover more distance along the front allowing for more sort of tasking flexibility around where to bomb. And of course, they also carried more bombs, which was really cool. The development of heavy bombers, and on a large scale, with about a third of the Soviet Air Force in 1937 being heavy bombers, allowed for the structure of missions to be changed, with an increased focus on heavy bombers being used for strikes on enemy airfields to destroy their ability to project air power. The ideal scenario was seen as a large operation involving large numbers of heavy bombers, along with escorting fighters and even some close support aircraft as well, with the hope of being able to take each type of aircraft and bring their own strengths to attacks on airfields to allow for that window of air superiority for the Soviet Air Force right at the beginning of a deep battle attack. The Soviet Air Force would have multiple opportunities to test their air power theories during the 1930s. The first of these opportunities would come during the Spanish Civil War. Much like the Germans and Italians, the Soviet Union would send both aircraft and pilots to fly them in Spain. In the Soviet case, to support the Republican forces against the Germans and Italians who flew for the Nationalists. When the first Soviet fighters arrived, they were the best aircraft in the skies of Spain, particularly the I-16, which was better than the German fighters before the Emi-109 arrived in 1938. The arrival of the superior German fighter would cause the Soviets to push forward with developments on a new generation of fighters in 1939. The actions in Spain also provided first-hand experience that would disprove one of the theories that had been gaining traction in the previous years, the idea that bombers were impervious to fighters and could bomb largely with impunity against enemy targets. The basis for this idea was the fact that before the generation of monoplane fighters arrived in the mid to late 1930s, bombers were often faster than fighters, or close enough to be able to stay far ahead of the fighters who were trying to intercept them. The idea that bombers could outrun fighters or were invulnerable to ground fire or fighters would be disproven over Spain, and you know a lot of unescorted bombers would be shot down during the conflict although many nations would make the same mistakes again in the first years of the Second World War. With the Spanish Civil War turning decisively against the Republicans, Soviet support would drop before finally ending before the final victory of the Nationalists. But then in May 1939, another round of experience would be found, this time in the vastness of Mongolia. In this area, the Soviet pilots would come up against Japanese aircraft, but not for the first time. Before the fighting at Kalkangol and Nomenhan, Soviet pilots had been in action against Japanese pilots over China, with the Soviets being a key supporter of Chiang Kai-shek against the Japanese for much of the 1930s. 
Over Kalkin Gol, one of the major challenges of the Soviet forces was uncovered, though, and that was the lack of the ability of the Air Force to properly share experience between pilots and squadrons and then put that experience to use in future actions. This would cause General Zhukov to pull in experienced pilots to share their knowledge of the actions over Spain and China to other pilots of other squadrons. These lessons would then be put to the test over Nomenhan, where the Soviet aircraft would do quite well, even though the Japanese aircraft would put a tremendous amount of effort into trying to bomb the Soviet airfields, a great example of how hard it was to really bomb an airfield out of usefulness. One interesting part of the Soviet experiences over Mongolia is that the lightly protected Japanese aircraft would cause the Soviets to strongly favor machine gun armed fighters, which were more than capable of dealing with the Japanese aircraft that they met over Mongolia. But this would become a bit more of a problem in later years when faced with better protected European aircraft. Machine guns just weren't enough. Air combat over Finland would present a slightly different challenge. In the Winter War, the number of aircraft involved would be higher, and because of this, the average experience of Soviet pilots would be lower. This made it harder to maintain the same level of performance as what had been seen in the later stages of the fighting in Mongolia, where the numbers involved were small enough that the pilots were often hand-picked for their skills, that they were truly elite. By the start of the Winter War, the Soviet Air Force was also suffering under the same expansion problems that the Red Army was during this time. Their numbers expanded, but it was hard to find enough officers and to provide all pilots with a certain level of training, especially when compared to earlier generations, which had had much smaller class sizes. And the expansion was impressive, though, both in terms of men in the Air Force, but also in terms of raw numbers of aircraft. By 1941, Soviet industry was producing over 1,600 aircraft every month, and it was four times more than what the Germans were producing at that same time. This is even more impressive when you consider the fact that the Soviet aviation industry basically didn't exist 10 years before, and every aircraft that they could produce at this point in time in 1940 and 1941 were simply because of the massive investments made in the five-year plans, and those investments were paying off just in time for the German invasion in June 1941. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. 
At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. After the Russian Civil War, the Soviet Navy would find itself in a rough spot. It had inherited a good number of large combat vessels, including 17 old battleships. But many of these ships were no longer combat capable, and during the early 1920s, they would be scrapped. The end result would be a much smaller naval force, with just a handful of larger ships like battleships kept on the naval list throughout the interwar period. Any further expansion was hampered by the simple lack of funds for most of the interwar years, along with the challenges faced by Soviet industry. There would be several unsuccessful attempts to restart naval construction during the 1920s, but these were always shot down for budgetary reasons. Soviet naval leaders would try and maintain realistic goals in the face of this downsizing, focusing initially just on trying to maintain a naval presence and the ability to project naval power in the Baltic Sea, with the secondary theater being the Black Sea. The two other areas of naval concern for the Soviet Union were the Arctic and the Pacific Oceans, but they were placed in a distant third and fourth place in terms of resources to be applied, with the hopes that a Soviet naval presence could be established in those theaters at some point in the future. In 1925, a set of exercises were held by the Soviet Navy, and the results were disappointing. The conclusions drawn from the actions were that the Baltic fleet needed a large number of large ships if it wanted to be able to control the sea, while it also lacked enough smaller vessels to support that increased number of large ships. These deficiencies would not be easy to resolve and would require a lengthy building program and large amounts of money. The first real interwar naval building program would be started in March 1927 when three submarines were ordered. This was a small building program, obviously, just three submarines, but the Navy was really fighting an uphill battle during these years as it tried to justify funding and resources at a time when the other naval services, the Army and the Air Force, were also very deficient when it came to size and equipment. It did not at all help their arguments that the larger navies built by other nations had not seemed to play a decisive role during the First World War making it more challenging for the Soviet Navy to claim that their resources to build large ships was going to be worth it. This would also mean that even the limited plans of 1929, heavily focused on repair and modernization of old ships that the Navy already had, was reduced even further as the first five-year plan was coming up short of its goals. There was still progress being made during this time. For example, the battleship Marat, would go through a modernization program during the first five-year plan, and many smaller cruisers and destroyers would go through similar efforts. But it was not meeting the, the Navy's goals or the Navy's plans of a few years earlier. Greater priority would be placed on the Soviet Navy during the second five-year plan. This included the creation of a naval forces of the Far East based in Vladivostok and Khabarovsk, and a northern naval flotilla based in Arkhangelsk. This included some major construction efforts, with the three base cities having their ability to construct and repair naval vessels massively increased. 
For example, in Arkhangelsk, a huge new set of dry docks were created that had a giant roof covering them to allow for their use in the harsh northern Russian winter. The problems were greater for the Far East Fleet, though, because it also needed to be able to construct naval vessels due to the distances involved in moving any ships to the Far East from Western Russia. While these capabilities were being built up, two temporary measures were taken, with some merchant ships converted into armed military vessels, and then some small and medium-sized submarines being built in the West and then sent in pieces to Vladivostok on the Trans-Siberian Railway, where they were then assembled. In July 1933, a major new naval expansion plan would be introduced, with an emphasis on both submarines and the naval vessels that were cruiser size and below. Submarines were given the most focus, with the goal being to build 369 submarines. The largest cruisers would be eight ships armed with 180mm or 7-inch guns, to be joined by over 60 destroyers, 28 patrol boats, 276 motor torpedo boats, and over 100 smaller vessels. It would be during these years that the Soviets would start to work closely with the Italians for both ship plans as well as design and construction expertise. As with many plans of the second five-year plan, the naval construction plans would result in a mixed bag in terms of success. On the negative side, none of the cruisers would be completed by the end of 1937, along with very few of the destroyers. They came very close to meeting the target for motor torpedo boats, though, which was still something to be celebrated. For submarines, which were really the primary area of focus for the naval expansion plan, 143 would be constructed, which missed the target by over 200, but 143 submarines still meant that the Soviet Navy in 1937 had the largest submarine force in the world, and it was almost entirely composed of modern and very capable designs. Even before the end of the second five-year plan, the Soviet Navy was already planning for the next phase of expansion, and they were going big. As early as 1935, planning had already started to try and determine how Soviet naval construction capabilities could greatly expand, and they would have to if they were going to meet the new targets. The goal as of April 1936, was to have a Soviet Navy by 1947 with 15 battleships, 22 heavy cruisers, 21 light cruisers, 162 destroyers, and 412 submarines. These numbers would later expand even further with the inclusion of aircraft carriers. But a continuing problem for the Soviet shipbuilders was around planning expertise. By 1935, large naval ships were you know, think of battleships and aircraft carriers, well, they were not just very expensive to build, they were also hard to design, and it was proving to be very difficult to try and create designs within the Soviet Union that would meet their future needs. Therefore, there were discussions with the Alsando Shipbuilding Yard in Genoa, with the intent of having the Italian company build a 42,000-ton battleship with three triple 405mm, or 16-inch guns, Then, after it was built, all of the plans and all of the specifications would be sent back to Moscow for use by domestic shipbuilders. This plan would never end up happening. There were also many Soviet-designed battleship plans that were put forward during this time, with displacements ranging from 23,000 tons all the way up to 75,000 tons. 
In total, there were five main variants of what the next generation of Soviet battleships would look like, and the two that were selected in February 1936 was one with 405 or 16 millimeter guns and a displacement of 35,000 tons, which would be built for the Baltic fleet, with another, again with 16-inch guns or 405 millimeters, and 55,000 tons of displacement, which would be built for the Pacific fleet. In both cases, all the guns would be arranged in three triple turrets placed together in front of the superstructure, much like the Nelson-class battleships that the Royal Navy had laid down in the early 1920s. The idea that there would be two different designs, one for the Baltic and one for the Pacific, pointed to the largest problem for the Soviet Navy in the 1930s, geography. The Soviet Navy had four key areas that they needed to defend if they wanted to be a naval power, the Arctic Ocean to the north, the Baltic Sea to the west, the Black Sea to the southwest, and the Pacific to the east. Three of these regions had major naval powers that also wanted naval control of the area, Arctic with the British, Baltic with the Germans, Pacific with the Japanese. But worst of all, none of these areas were connected with one another, and especially in wartime, it was simply impossible to move ships between them. Of all the great powers, the Soviet Union had by far the worst naval geography problems for this very reason. A battleship in one theater could not really lend any assistance to the ships in any of the other theaters if the Soviet Union was at war with other Western nations. This was not a new problem either. The Tsarist Navy had tried to send help to the Pacific Fleet in 1905 during the Russo-Japanese War, and the result had been a catastrophic defeat at Tsushima after the Russian fleet had traveled 33,000 kilometers from Europe all the way around the world. Because of this problem that was in no way different, really, in the 1930s, the only way that Soviet naval power seemed to work was if the Soviet Navy could challenge the leading naval power in every region, and this greatly inflated the building requirements. The planned eight battleships and one aircraft carrier for the Pacific would be stuck in the Pacific. The five battleships in the Black Sea would be stuck there. Now, of course, these lofty dreams of having all of these ships available by 1947 would prove to be an impossible dream. By the time that the war started, none of the large capital ships were completed, most of them had not even been started, and they never would be, due to every possible resource needing to be used to stop the Germans. Then, when the war was over, the overall makeup of naval power would necessitate a, a rethinking of how the Soviets approached naval combat, especially due to the, the massive strength of the American Navy post-1945, which was the Soviet Union's primary enemy on the world stage. But... For a few brief years, in the late 1930s, the Soviet naval leaders and Stalin, who was a big supporter of the plans, were allowed to dream the dream of having a massive Soviet fleet able to contest for supremacy on all of the high seas surrounding the Soviet Union. Thank you for listening to this, the 11th and final part of our series on the Soviet Union before the Second World War. Next episode, we will shift our focus just a little bit, but not too much, by focusing on the diplomatic relations that the Soviet Union had with three Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and how, in late 1939, the Soviets would present them with ultimatums which would essentially force them to give up their sovereignty in anticipation for a Soviet invasion during 1940.